Well, our scripture today is Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Where it says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. May God bless his word to us this morning. In the next to last chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, the Apostle John has a vision there of the new heavens and new earth. And he hears the Lord say, he hears a voice from the throne that says, Behold, I am making all things new. And then the Lord goes on to say in verses 7 through 8 of Revelation 21, The one who conquers will have this heritage, the new heavens and new earth. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But then he describes those who will be excluded from the new heavens and new earth. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. This is the voice of the Lord speaking. These are the people who the Lord specifically says will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Murderers, sure, of course, murderers. The sexually immoral, the word there is a general term for fornication, any any kind of sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. Sorcerers, uh, interesting Greek word there. The Greek word for sorcerer is pharmakos, which we get our word for pharmacy from. Now, I don't think pharmacists are all going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Don't get me wrong. But uh, a sorcerer is someone who practices magic or the black arts, and, and I guess they mixed up potions kind of like pharmacists do, and that's why we call our pharmacists pharmacists. And idolaters, of course idolaters, those, they worship false gods. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire and liars. The detestable, people who commit abominations is the meaning of that word. Their, their lives are ab- abominations. And the faithless, you know, faith is the instrument of justification. So, of course, if you have no faith, you're not putting your faith in the Lord and... Uh, That's the only way to be justified and saved. But notice the first thing he mentions. The very first name on the list 
is the cowardly. The cowardly. And that seems a little bit surprising in this rogues gallery of sinners. The cowardly are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. In some languages, a coward is one who always runs or one who runs away at nothing. The coward retreats while his comrades are advancing. Well, the Bible extensively uses military imagery to describe the Christian life, as you know. We are, uh, we are in a moment-by-moment spiritual battle. We hear several places in the uh, New Testament tell us specifically that. Uh, we are in a battle with the world, the temptations that it brings to us. We're in a battle with our own flesh that desires those things that are against the Lord. We have to fight with the devil and his minions who are regularly trying to trip us up. So you can see, if you think about it that way, to not engage in the battle, to be a coward, to run away from that fight, that cowardice is not compatible with Christianity because we're in a battle. And that's why it is the one who conquers who will share in the heritage of the new heavens and new earth, the one who conquers. So cowardice and Christianity are not compatible. Now the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, they were showing signs of cowardice. They were tempted to run away from the faith, tempted to run away from the war, the spiritual war that manifested itself in physical ways in their lives, like having their things plundered and being thrown in prison, persecution, physical persecution. They were wanting to run away from that trouble to a place of ease and comfort. They were discouraged, discouraged. They had lost their courage. And the writer of Hebrews, uh, he is seeking to in encourage them, to boost their courage, to fill them with courage. And how does he do so? Well, he points them to Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. He says here, verse 1, and throughout this whole book. That's what the book is doing. It's considering Jesus. It's showing the glory and the superiority of Jesus. Well, perhaps, well, first of all, Revelation We just quoted from Revelation. The purpose of Revelation is the same as the purpose of Hebrews. Uh, The visions that John receives that are the book of Revelation were given to John so he could give them to the church. A church that, if you read in the first couple of chapters, was beleaguered and downtrodden. They were being unfaithful. Their love had grown cold, you know, as we see the seven churches and how they're described. They were all going through difficult circumstances because of their Christianity. And time and time again, the Lord says to them, you know, the one who overcomes will get the crown of life. The one who endures to the end. So you see, the book of Revelation is also seeking to encourage beleaguered Christians. Well, perhaps you are discouraged today. You're losing the battle with your flesh. You have certain temptations that continue to prevail over you. 
Or maybe you have just given in completely to that temptation, just living in that sin and not battling with it at all. And this has been a real problem during the pandemic. We're more isolated and in the privacy of your own home. No one sees what you're doing. No one knows what you're doing. So your reputation in the world remains intact. But behind closed doors, what are you doing? But remember, God sees everything. Or perhaps in your discouragement, you're conforming more and more to the world than to Christ. It seems like you see more and more people moving away from traditional Christian beliefs or rejecting the church altogether. It seems that many people's philosophy in the church seems to be if you can't beat them, join them. So you you will find it much more comfortable if your so-called Christianity isn't different from the world or if you hide your faith from others to avoid persecution. That's just cowardly. That's what these people were struggling with and, and we are from time to time tempted to behave in the same way. I'm sure that every true Christian hearing my voice today has gone through times of discouragement just like these people to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing. So I don't want you to be discouraged that you are discouraged. Sometimes if you look at yourself and you think, well, I am one of those discouraged Christians, and that's just discouraging. And it's just a downward cycle of defeatism. You don't want to be defeated You need to seek to be encouraged. And that brings us back to the text. Consider Jesus. Anytime you're discouraged, look at him. Look at Jesus. Think about him and what he's done and who he is. And that's what we're going to do today. But first notice how he addresses his readers. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... They're holy brothers, and the word holy means set apart. Uh, it does have that sense of purity, but it really, more usually, it means set apart for God. So, take for example the temple. You had all the different utensils and uh, items in the temple that were set apart for a holy use. They were purified, you know, they were cleansed and washed and, and created in such a way that they were, they were made pure, but they were also sacred. They weren't just used for everyday activities. They were, unless you say everyday activities in the sense of sacrifices going on every day, but they were set aside for a very specific purpose for God in the temple. We talk about the Bible as the Holy Bible. See, the Bible is not just any book. It's not like all the other books in the world. It's set apart. It's very special. It is pure, yes, but it's set apart. It's above and beyond any other book in the world. That's what it means to be holy. So these brothers and sisters, they were set apart for God, and he's reminding them of that. Holy brothers, set apart for God. You who share in a heavenly calling. They had received God's call. God had called them by name, and they were his, as we just sang from Isaiah 43. They belonged to God. He had called them out to follow him. And I am merely pointing this out because holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, 
sometimes get discouraged and need to be reminded to consider Jesus again, as was the case for these folks to whom the writer of the Hebrews was writing. Now, as we consider Jesus here in the next few moments, let us first see how he's described in verse 1. It tells us that he is uh, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. We think about the apostles, you know, the 12 disciples and Paul as an apostle. Um, We don't often think of Jesus as an apostle. But the word apostle merely means one who is sent. One who is sent forth a special messenger, someone who is commissioned for a special task or role. And that certainly describes Jesus, doesn't it? He was was one who was sent forth. He was one who uh, was sent forth from the Father to come and take on human flesh and dwell amongst us. He was sent from God on a mission. He had something to do, and he completed that mission. And apostles represent God to humans. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, the, the 12 apostles, Apostle Paul, he went out. He was sent forth to, to tell people about Christ, to tell people about God. That was his calling. So Jesus was sent forth. He represented God to humans. And, and that's what we saw in chapter 1, right? He was, he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's everything that God is, Jesus is. When you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. He and the Father are one. So he's the apostle. But he's also the high or chief priest. He's uh, not only the, you know, the priest that comes and uh, makes a sacrifice, he himself is the sacrifice, the one and for all Sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he has that priestly function in, in cleansing us from sin. The apostle represents God to humans. The priest represents humans to God. So you think about the temple and the high priest in the temple in the Old Testament. The people would bring their sacrifices to the temple and the priest would present them to God. The people didn't come into God's presence. The priest did. He represented the people to God. So Jesus is the apostle and the high priest. He represents God to humans, and he represents humans to God. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So there it is. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, apostle and high priest. And it's of our confession. And the, to, say, to say he is the apostle and high priest of our confession means that we have openly expressed our allegiance to him. So the writer of Hebrews is telling, telling them to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest that we have confessed, that we have pledged our allegiance to, the one that we have embraced, the one that, that we own. We own him. My wife Sarah is a fifth grade teacher. 
And sometimes, I know this is surprising, but sometimes one student will make an accusation towards another student. It happens. And she always, as she tells me these stories, she always you know, has to unravel the truth of what actually happened. And of course, everyone is shading the truth or, or outright lying. I didn't do that. And she always, in those situations, encourages them to own their part. Own your part in whatever went wrong. Or, to put it another way, she wants them to confess what they did wrong, to own it, to embrace it. Yes, that is my fault. I did that. Well, that's the word we're, we're talking about here, confession. We're owning it. We're saying, yes, Jesus is my apostle and high priest. I'm owning that. I'm owning him. He is mine, and I am his. So Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I think verse 2 has the sweetest phrase in this section. He was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Now, back in uh, uh, 1 Timothy 2, where Paul talks about being, uh, Jesus being the mediator between God and man, he goes on to say, for this, for this, Paul, I, for, for this, I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He was sent. He was appointed. In the same way, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. He was sent. He's an apostle. Jesus was faithful. So he was on a mission that he had been given, and he was faithful to it. He was sent to us from heaven, and he came so that he might represent us back to heaven. And he was faithful in all that he undertook. He was faithful to carry out the mission. He was faithful as the high priest. And just imagine, and I don't think it's possible that Jesus could have failed in his mission, but just imagine if he would have said yes to Satan in the, in the desert when he was tempted. Uh, what, what if he had said in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what, my will be done. My will be done. Not yours, Lord. Not yours, Father. But of course he didn't say that. But if he, if he had failed in his mission, we would be in trouble. We would be destined for that lake of fire. So Jesus was faithful in all that he did. He was faithful to the Father who appointed him. Now, the next little section takes us into a comparison uh, with Moses. Um, he was faithful to him who appointed, appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. We need to understand why he's doing this. Why is he comparing Jesus to Moses? Well, of course the people who were receiving this letter were beleaguered Christians that had come to Christianity from Judaism. In the Roman Empire, Judaism was tolerated. It was not illegal. And life was much easier 
for, for the Jews in the Roman Empire. Christianity was against the law. Uh, if uh, a Christian was unwilling to say that Caesar is Lord, uh, that would prevent them from being able to be a member of the guilds, or, or like a union. If you had a certain profession, um, say you're a blacksmith, if you wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, then you couldn't be in the union, the guild, and therefore you could not get a job. So it was very economically tough to be a Christian, Christian in the Roman Empire. And of course, Jesus is the only one that's Lord, and so they couldn't make that confession. So they were obviously going through difficult times, and we'll read about it in later chapters. They faced persecution, they faced having their things plundered, they faced being thrown in prison, and I'm sure they faced death as well. And, you know, maybe their friends and their families were getting in their ear and saying, you know, what are you doing? Look at your life. Look how difficult it is. You're making your life miserable by following this Jesus. Come back. Come back to the family. Come back to your old way of life and be able to survive and not be persecuted. And you can get so discouraged that that starts to make sense. Now, none of us here, I'm assuming, none of us are tempted to go back to Judaism. We, We didn't come from Judaism, not that I know of here, uh, but we're not, that's probably not our temptation. But we do have a common temptation with them. That is to compromise, to, to go to the path of least resistance, to water down our faith, to conform more to the world than to Christ. And, in our, you know, we, we don't want to to be singled out. We don't want to stick out or to be made fun of. So we have the same kind of temptation. Oh, you know, don't be so strict or don't be so holier than thou or, you know, roll with the changes in life and in in society. We're tempted with those things just as they were. We're tempted to have a watered-down version of Christianity or to abandon the faith altogether, just like these people were doing. So that's why we need to look at this section and think about Moses. Now, he's going to tell us how great Moses was. And Moses was great. He was one of the greatest. He's probably the greatest person in the Old Testament. And he says here in verse 2, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. And he's saying, just like Moses. Jesus is just like Moses in that sentence. And he's making a reference to a very specific event in the Old Testament, in Numbers 12. That phrase, Moses was faithful in all God's house, is referring to Numbers 12. And in Numbers 12... That is where Miriam and Aaron kind of start speaking badly about Moses. And here's what it says. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, and they were wandering in the wilderness at this point on, on the Exodus. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. Cushite is an Ethiopian. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, 
Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. There's the phrase. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Well, that's, that's astounding what God says there. I speak with Moses mouth to mouth, straight up, and he beholds the form of God. That's, there was no one closer to God than Moses, except Jesus. No one who ever lived on the face of the earth was closer to God than Moses, except Jesus. And that's what he go, where he goes next in Hebrews 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Yes, right, sure, of course he is, because Moses beheld the form of the Lord. Jesus is the form of the Lord, as we saw in chapter 1. He is the exact representation of the being of God. He is God. He is the Word of God. God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth, but Jesus is the Word of God. The Logos, as it says in John chapter 1. So yes, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why would you want to go back to Moses when you've got Jesus? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And that's true, isn't it? We, we, we honor famous architects. You know, we know who Frank Lloyd Wright is, hopefully. Uh, he was a great architect um, and is famous for some of his buildings. The buildings are great. They're glorious buildings, beautiful buildings. But... You know, the one who gets all the glory is the one who actually designed it, the genius who put it together and made it look so beautiful. Sarah's father, my, my father-in-law, is an architect. And there were buildings in, a, in Clarksdale and Oxford and other places that we would go and see or drive by on a regular basis. And if the kids were in the car, you'd say, yeah, your grandfather designed that building. We wouldn't just say, oh, look at that nice building. We'd say, your grandfather built that. He, he is the one that built that building. And that's what 
the writer of Hebrews is saying. The house is great, but the builder is greater, and Jesus is the builder. And he also says this in verse 5, look at that. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So there's some, some contrast here. They were both faithful, but Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was part of God's house. He was in God's house, and he was a servant there, and he was actually pointing to Jesus. He was testifying to things that were to be spoken later, things that would be revealed later. So Moses is pointing to Jesus. He's a servant in the house to help everybody else in the house look to the builder of the house. See, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's over it all. It's his. So, why would we go back? Look at the glory of Christ. Why would we want to water that down? Or compromise with the world when, when God is doing something in Christ? Something great, something eternal. And he goes on in verse 6, and here's his application. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting and our hope. We are his house. Those who belong to the Lord, yeah, we may get discouraged, but we need to be encouraged and hold fast our confidence, our unashamed confidence and openness. There's a, this word has a sense of freedom of speech. We are, when you're confident about something, you know, it's not bragging if it's true, right? If, you, if you're saying that you're so great, you know, it's not bragging if it's true. If you can back it up. Jesus can back it up. And so we need to hold fast to him and our confidence in him and, and be able to say, yes, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. He's the apostle and high priest of my confession. And we need to hold fast our boasting. That word means pride. Straight up pride or the grounds for our pride. Hold fast to, the, to, to what you're pro- proud of. And that should be Jesus. Man, never boast except in Christ, Paul said. If we're part of his house, that's what, we will, what, what will rise to the top. We will hang on to the Lord as he hangs on to us. Our confidence and boasting of hope. We have a future. New heavens and new earth. Something for us. It may not be cool to be a Christian in our day, but it'll be cool when we get to the new heavens and new earth for eternity. It may be hard in our current situation, and it may get harder if the trend continues in our culture. But there will be an eternity in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more weeping, 
or pain or sorrow or sin. So hang on to Jesus. He's someone to brag about, someone to be excited about, someone to serve and to love because he has first loved us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you again, as always, for your word. So rich, so encouraging. Lord, we have so much information coming to us from the world that discourages us and draws us away from you. We pray, Lord, that time and time again you would help us to return to your word and to dive in and to drink deep from the rivers of living water. Lord, we pray that everyone here today would become part of your house, your people. We pray those who don't know you, as they see Christ and consider Jesus, that, that they would confess you, that they would embrace you, own you, and receive the forgiveness that you have secured as you came, the apostle and high priest, to make atonement for us. We pray, Lord, that people would embrace you, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you would help those who are discouraged today to be encouraged as we consider Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen.